And if you brought a Bible with you, uh, please open it to the book of Mark, chapter 6. Book of Mark, chapter 6. Once you find that, you can hold your place. If you didn't bring a Bible, have no fear. The people next to you are not looking down on you. I will be reading from God's Word shortly. Father, would you bless this preaching of your Word? I want you to think about something with me, church. Familiarity, being familiar with something or someone, is both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing in the sense that familiarity can give us a tangible sense of peace, stability, and comfort. I think of a Kerala, North Carolina for me and my family. So we've been going there for an annual beach vacation for 15 years, roughly half of my adult life. And I don't need a map to get there anymore. I don't need my phone, GPS. I, I know the roads. I know the rest stops for the kids and expecting wife. I know where to get food. I know if there's traffic, how long it's going to take roughly to get through. And when I, when I get off that, if you've ever been to the Outer Banks, I turn off 158, that bridge over the sound, turn left on Route 12 north up to Kerala. I can feel rest. It's familiar. Maybe you have places like that for you that when you, when you just get close, you can just kind of feel yourself relaxing. Familiar, it's, it's good. But I think familiarity can also be a, a real challenge or a curse. The wife you once cherished, pursued, and, and couldn't be more grateful for, gentlemen, well, she's now a little older. A little older, a little more normal, and all too familiar. Of course, she's woken up faithfully next to you for 30 years. Of course, she cooks dinner for you every night. Of course, she prays for you regularly, cares for your children, and forbears with all your sins and weaknesses. That's old news. Tell, tell me something interesting I don't know. Hey, did you see that UVA-Duke game last weekend? That's not good, gentlemen. <laughs> okay, she weren't tracking. That's, that's the bad example. That's the dark side of familiarity. Where we get so used to something, so comfortable with something, that, that we literally fail to perceive in that case, your wife, the blessing and gift that it actually is. That's true in pretty much every area of life. Familiarity can be good, it can be bad, and that includes our our relationship with God. There's a familiarity with God that leads to life and faith. And then there's another kind of familiarity with God that leads to unbelief and death. So look at Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. 
he, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simeon? And are not his sisters here with us? They took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. If you're tracking with Mark thus far, you know that this story comes on the heels of some pretty serious proofs of the power of God. At the end of Mark 4, Jesus proves his authority over nature by calming a storm. At the beginning of Mark 5, Jesus proves his authority over the demonic by casting demons out of a man. And in the second half of Mark 5, Jesus proves his authority over sickness and death by healing a little girl and an older woman whose bodies were ravaged by disease. And church, there's a reason that Mark strings all these stories next to one another. Here's his goal. He wants to prove the main point of his gospel. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ... The Son of God. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the Son of God. That's the goal of the Gospel. So what kind of person calms a raging storm with two words? What kind of person has multitudes of demons bowing down before him, pleading for their life. What kind of person can say, Talitha Kumi, and bring a little girl from death to life? Who does that? You don't. You never will. But Jesus does. Jesus does, which should convince us of something. Jesus was not just a man. He was the Christ, the Son of God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As a God of justice, Jesus expected people to trust him. Why are you so afraid, he rebuked his disciples. Have you still no faith? As a God of mercy, he granted faith to those who were powerless to trust him. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And as a God of wisdom, he only saved those who chose to trust him. What did Jesus say to the little girl's father? Do not fear. Only believe. Many of the people who believed Jesus were not the people you would think would believe Jesus. <laughs> Chief among them, prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, children, fishermen. And the, and the people who refused to trust Jesus were many of the people that we would expect to be at the front of the line to do better. Religious leaders, neighbors, relatives, even, even his own family. In Mark 3, Mark tells us that his family went out to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. Why is it that those who were closest to Jesus, who arguably spent the most time around Jesus, knew most things about Jesus, were so familiar with Jesus, were often the last people to actually trust Jesus. Think about that. Friend, it's because familiarity is different than faith. Being familiar with Jesus is not the same thing as trusting Jesus. A familiarity can lead to faith, but it's not the same as faith. And God is graciously warning us in these verses, don't assume that because you know a lot of things about Jesus or are really comfortable with, with the idea of Jesus, that you actually trust Jesus. And Mark gives us here two reasons why why getting comfortable with Jesus, like that husband with his wife, why getting comfortable with Jesus is really dangerous. Two reasons. First, familiarity easily leads to unbelief. I think that familiarity easily leads to unbelief. You would think that the people of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, would be among his most enthusiastic supporters, right? It's, it's like expecting, you know, Boston to go crazy when the Patriots return from the Super Bowl. You just expect it. And verse 2 sort of starts like we might expect. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. People are astonished. But, but note, this isn't the kind of astonishment that we saw in Capernaum back in chapter 3. It's not an astonishment at the wisdom of his words or the power of his miracles. 
It's an astonishment that wise words and powerful miracles are coming from that guy. Jesus. What's amazing is not so much what Jesus is doing. It's the fact that of all people, Jesus is doing it. So he asks these questions in in verse 2. Look there with me. These rhetorical questions that, that, that reveal, please hear this, that reveal underlying assumptions about the identity of Christ. Where, where did this man, notice that, get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? What's the assumption? He's only a man. Men aren't born with that kind of wisdom. So it must have come from somewhere. It it, it can't have originated within him. How how are such mighty works done by his hands? What's the assumption? Carpenters' hands don't do mighty works. They build stuff. He's done it for two decades. He worked in the shop down the street. We know his mom, his brothers, and his sisters. They're no different than we are, which means he is no different than all of us. So, Jesus, what gives you the right to go around pretending to be all high and mighty? Okay, take a look in the mirror. You are no different than any of us. So quit pretending to be somebody you're not. I mean, honestly, Jesus, this whole like self-righteous shtick is just getting a little offensive. You're a local boy. We ate the same food. We played in the same street. We went to the same school. You're a great guy. I will call you the greatest guy on the street. But you know what? You're not God. How did that happen? Why did they refuse to believe Jesus was God and follow him accordingly? Well, friend, it's because over the years they grew so accustomed to Jesus. So used to Jesus that that he ceased to be anything but ordinary in their minds. I mean, maybe he's glorious in the eyes of other people. Capernaum seemed pretty worked up, but I mean, he's great. I mean, he he made great furniture. But he's 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 still just a carpenter. Their familiarity led to unbelief. And when we think about unbelief, I I think we often think of, what's unbelief? A settled conviction that something is most certainly not true. So for example, I have a settled conviction that the Patriots are most certainly not the best team in football. I do. Settled conviction. There's no room for argument. But... But most of us, to run with the analogy, we don't develop these kind of settled convictions about our sports teams overnight. It's a process. There's a 
There's a growing loyalty, a growing resistance to any other suggestions. Conviction grows over time. And the same is true of our relationship with God. This settled conviction that something most certainly may not be true grows over time. You know, I doubt any of us would say, you know what, yesterday I was full of faith. Trusting Jesus, obeying Jesus, letting him call the shots in my life. I was so full of faith. I am done with that today. I'm just done with that. I don't believe him. I don't trust him. I I think all this Jesus stuff is just a joke. I'm done. No. I mean, maybe in some rare situations you you watch somebody just kind of turn like that. But but is it not true? It's, It's usually a process. It's a process. The, the road we walk from the land of faith to the land of Nazareth, if you would, is a slow road. It's a wide road. It's, it's an easy road. It's a downhill road. And friend, nothing propels us down that road from the land of faith to the land of unbelief. It just pushes us right along like getting comfortable with God. Being familiar with Jesus. It it just pushes us right along. And the first step, I would argue, is barely perceptible. You just don't feel the same passion you used to for the Lord. And you decide not to worry about it. Everybody has bad days. I'm sure I'll, I'll feel better next week. Besides, life is crazy. I've got bills to pay. I've got kids to feed. Wife who wants this and that and that. Yesterday, I've got a boss barking at me. I, I'm sure God understands. I'll, I'll get back to the spiritual stuff when life settles down. And weeks turn into months. And months turn into years. And before long... You can't remember the last time that you stood in awe of the Son of God. You just can't even remember. You know the stories. You can recite half the Bible. Your head is packed full of Christian knowledge and your heart is so cold and dead and numb. Jesus just seems small and insignificant and ordinary. And you keep going to church because your friends go to church and you don't want your spouse to think you're going crazy. But you actually don't even know why you walk in. And part of you is wondering, given what you feel, or rather what you don't, is all this Jesus stuff just a, a, a nutcase? <laughs> Familiarity with him easily leads to unbelief. I just walked that road. Didn't take very long, right? 
And guess who's most susceptible to walking that road? It is people who have either grown up in the church or spent many years in the church. And in preparing this message, I thought about you. Not because I think this room is full of unbelief. (laughs) But because many of you, like me, have grown up in the church. And many of you, like me, have spent many years of your life in the church. And it is so easy to become so familiar with Jesus, so, so accustomed to hearing the gospel and singing the gospel and reading the gospel, that our hearts grow dull. We no longer see Jesus as glorious, and unbelief takes root in our hearts. It happens. So, how do we keep familiarity with Jesus from pushing us down this road from faith to unbelief? How do we prevent that from happening? What do we do if we we find ourselves halfway down the road? Right? Let's just, can we all acknowledge this isn't a hypothetical, Matthew's sort of doing his acting thing. Like, this is life. What, What do we do when you find yourself halfway down the road? Well, I think the answer to the question, how do you stay off the road, is the same answer to the question, how do you get off the road if you're on it? I would suggest three things, friend. First, first, wherever Jesus has ceased to be glorious in your eyes, wherever you've allowed familiarity with Jesus to take the place of faith in Jesus, you need to repent. You need to repent. Change will not happen if you just pretend, well, it's normal, it's not unusual, it's not a big deal. No. You need to repent. Trusting Jesus is not some spiritual thing crazy Christians do. Trusting Jesus is a moral responsibility in the world created and upheld by the Son of God. It's a responsibility. Not just on you, but on every person you saw this week and will see in the next week. Every person. Moral responsibility. You must trust, worship, and adore, and obey the Son of God. Deuteronomy confirms that. Chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God. What? With all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Which means that turning from spiritual apathy starts with confessing our apathy to God for what it really is, a step down the road of unbelief. Second, first we repent. Second, we cry out to God. We cry out to God to empower us through the Holy Spirit to see Jesus as glorious and savor Jesus as glorious. Ephesians 3 For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may, listen church, he may grant you. Why are we crying out to God? Because he's a God who grants stuff to us, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. How? Through his spirit in your inner being. So, what's the result? That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. This isn't comfortable with Jesus. Listen, what Paul's about to pray for, this is, this is called standing in awe of the Son of God, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Just as an aside here, because I'm preaching and have the mic, which can be dangerous. Listen, the reason we are passionate about the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit at Kingsway is not because we are passionate about supernatural gifts. Though... We thank God for them, especially the gifts of prophecy, and in obedience to God's word are committed to eagerly pursuing those gifts. But the main reason we are passionate about the Holy Spirit at Kingsway is because we are passionate about the glory of Jesus Christ at Kingsway. And we believe that apart from the ongoing work of the Spirit in our lives, we will never be able to see Jesus, savor Jesus, and obey Jesus. You don't get that done without the power of the Spirit of God. And that's why Paul said, I pray, brothers, that you may be strengthened with power to comprehend the depth of the love of Christ. Christian, you can't fix your apathy. God can. And God does. And the reason the Holy Spirit is here is not so that some random person can occasionally walk up to this microphone and say something you think... Open but cautious. No, the reason the Spirit is here more than any other reason is to open your eyes to see Jesus. So you can delight in Him. You realize He's actually doing that when we gather? The Spirit of God is literally in this room, opening eyes, shining in darkness, to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The mission of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son who sent him. And by the way, that's a great way to test prophecy. That word, glorify the Son of God. The main way the Spirit of God glorifies the Son of God in our eyes is through the Word of God. The Word of God. We repent of our apathy, our unbelief. We cry out to the Holy Spirit to help us see Jesus, expecting that he will do that through the word of God. Why? Why do I say the word of God? Matthew, you were going for this kind of exciting God spiritual thing, and now you're talking about a book. Connect it. Well, it's because in the word of God that we discover the great truths of the gospel. And it's in the great truths of the gospel that we see Jesus for who he really is in his life, death, and resurrection. Listen, nothing proclaims the glory of Christ more clearly than the gospel. Okay, the gospel proclaims the justice of God. The gospel proclaims the mercy of God. The gospel proclaims the wisdom of God. The gospel proclaims the power of God. And the gospel proclaims the love of God. Which is why Paul could say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's why 
We gather on Sundays to remember and respond to the gospel as revealed in the word of God. And that, more than anything else, is what we are crying out for the Spirit of God to do in us to change our apathetic, unbelieving hearts. He'll use the word. Because the Bible isn't just a book of religious facts. It's a story. It's a unified story. It's... It's a story about Jesus. And the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to help you see Him. If you fail to read God's Word, to study God's Word, to memorize God's Word, you know what you can expect to happen in your life? You can expect to begin to walk down the path to unbelief. You can. I don't play the lottery. That is a guaranteed outcome. Why? Because if you don't read God's word and study God's word or memorize God's word, you don't have a a Christian merit badge to put in your your spiritual belt. (laughs) No. Because only in the word will the spirit of God open your eyes to see Jesus. It's not about checking off your quiet time box, people. It's about seeing Jesus. That's the point of the book. More to be said there, but suffice it to say, that means spiritual disciplines are a gift, not a duty. Take care that you don't allow familiarity with Jesus to take the place of faith in Jesus. That kind of familiarity, that kind of getting comfortable is dangerous first Because familiarity easily leads to unbelief. Easily. Easily leads. Second, because unbelief destroys our relationship with God. Remember, we're talking about why is this getting comfortable, this too familiar with Jesus? Why is that dangerous? Well, first, because that familiarity, it easily leads to unbelief. Second, because unbelief destroys our relationship with God. It's not not this currently popular cultural skepticism that's cosmopolitan and sort of dwells above the fray of certain conviction and says, I I see truth in it all, Williams. That's not biblical faith. That is creating a God in your own making. And if you do that, you are not believing the one true God and that will destroy your relationship with the one true God. Unbelief destroys our relationship with him. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. And he, Jesus, could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Those are some of the most sobering words, I'm convinced, in the entire book. He could do no mighty work there. Can he calm the storm? You betcha. Can he deliver a demoniac? Yes. Can he raise a little girl from the dead and heal a terribly sick woman? Absolutely. Why did none of that happen in Nazareth? Because they didn't believe him. It's that simple. They didn't believe him. Verse 6, because, Mark says, because of their unbelief. 
Friend, there will be many points in your life, if you haven't hit this already, where it's going to feel like what you believe or don't believe about Jesus really doesn't matter that much. You track with me. It's going to feel like what I believe or don't believe about Jesus right now really not that important. What, what does faith have to do with getting the business off the ground? Or, or finishing college or, or hurting your toddlers through another day? What, what does faith have to do, Jesus have to do, with all that? Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. Because there's not a single day in our life, let alone a single hour in our day, when every one of us doesn't stand in desperate need of the mighty work of God in our life. And that's why faith is relevant every single day of your life, and unbelief will destroy your relationship with God if it's allowed to continue every single day of your life. Because for a time, it feels like we can set God aside. He's like an old clock on the mantle, and we can get along well enough. But that never lasts, because we were made for dependence. We were created for faith. Faith is not an optional exercise for religious people. It's not. It will always be your greatest need. Always. As a creature made in the image of God to trust Him. It's always our greatest need. It's not this optional exercise. John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit For apart from me, you can do nothing. You will never have a genuine relationship with God apart from faith in the Son of God. Never. Never. Faith really matters. Think of it this way. If you want to experience God's power, you have to trust God's son. God will not have it otherwise. He's not going around kind of leaking out power to people who who really don't believe him. If you want to experience God's power, you must, you have to. It is absolutely critical and required and necessary that you trust God's son. Why did God set it up that way? Ever wondered that? I mean, if he's good and all, why does he just go around doing mighty works of power for all kinds of people not really worrying about what we believe about him or don't believe about him. I mean, how can a good God do that to me? You know, I say, I don't believe you. And he says, well, nobody works for you. Is that loving? That's not loving. He's being a jerk. Do you know that God's ultimate aim is not to make right everything that's wrong around you? You know what his ultimate aim is? You know why he only acts in response to faith? It's because God's ultimate aim is to make everything right that's gone wrong inside of you. Inside of you. If his ultimate aim were just to fix everything wrong around us, it wouldn't matter 
who believed or didn't believe, it would be totally irrelevant. God does his thing, we do our thing, the world goes its merry way. But that's not the truth. God's ultimate aim is to make right what's gone inside of us, to deal with the sin in our hearts that destroys our relationship with him and our relationships with one another. Think of it this way. When you boil it down, what is every single sin at its root? You know what it is? It's unbelief. It's unbelief. If you're not living a life of sexual purity, what are you doing? You are refusing to believe that God's plan for your physical desires is best. That's what you're doing. If you're lashing out in anger at your spouse, what are you doing? You are refusing to believe that God's in control and is working all the events of today for your good and His glory. If if you're perpetually anxious about money, what are you doing? You're refusing to believe that God is a faithful provider. If you secretly harbor thoughts about how superior you are to all the people around you because you've worked hard or you've studied hard, what are you doing? You're refusing to believe that everything you have, friend, is a gift from God. Every sin at its root is unbelief. A placing of confidence, like Adam and Eve in the garden, in what we think instead of what God says. That's the difference. There's a world of difference between what we think and what God says. And there's only one person in the entire universe who can deliver us from unbelief, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. So if you are desperate for the mighty work of God in your life, listen, you don't need a 12-step program. You won't find God's power simply by going to church. You won't experience the Lord by being a good person. You will find God's power. You will know God's power. You will experience God's power only as you place your confidence fully and completely in the Son of God and believe Him to be who He says He is for you. That is how you experience the power of God. Those other things can be helpful but they will not secure the mighty work of God in your life. Friend, don't ignore the presence of unbelief in your heart. Don't ignore it. It will destroy your relationship with God. If you want to experience His power, you have to trust His Son. Not because He's a weak God or can't do anything unless you know people kind of give Him a permission slip. We don't govern Him. He governs us. But because in his sovereign wisdom, he has chosen to manifest his saving power in response to the faith of his people. And nothing glorifies God like a life of faith. And nothing will bring you more joy than a life of faith. He created you to trust him. Being a Christian isn't about what you know about Jesus. It's about actually trusting Him. Familiarity is not the same as faith. And don't assume that simply because you are comfortable with Jesus that you're actually trusting Him right now. I'll close with this. 
Because a lot of what I've said today is, it's heavy, right? It's, it's hard. It, it hits the soul and forces us to, to be honest about what's going on inside of us. But here's where our confidence lies. God knows that in this life, your faith is, at its, on its best day, it's never going to be perfect. It's not. We will always live in two minds between the land of faith and the land of unbelief. Some days you may feel like, I, I, I'm like, you know, the, on the Incredibles, that woman who could just kind of stretch. You know, I'm just caught between faith and unbelief. And God knows that. What sets the Christian apart is that faith is alive alongside your struggle with unbelief. But faith is hard. Faith, faith requires endurance. And so church, I exhort you with the words of Hebrews, run the race that is set before you. Looking to Jesus. The what? The founder, oh this is good news, and perfecter of your faith. Oh, he doesn't just say, Unbelief, bad, don't get too comfortable with me. Good luck. No. He gives you a gift of faith. And then, wonderful wonders, he promises to perfect it. If, you knew that was coming, we keep our eyes on him. Looking to Jesus, he'll perfect your faith. Let's pray. Oh, Father. We ask that you would help us to not get too comfortable with you. So comfortable with you, so familiar with you, that we end up seeing you as little more than a carpenter. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to turn from unbelief, to walk by faith. That all that would happen because we keep our eyes on you. Father, I want to pray especially right now for young men and women who have grown up in this church. We prayed for their small group leaders earlier in the meeting. I want to pray right now for them. I'm one of them. And I am no less in need of this prayer because I am preaching your word today. I pray that we would not get comfortable with you. I pray, Lord, that that this church would be a place where the young people are the ones who most stand in awe of God. That those listening and sitting here who have been following you for three decades and four decades would say, week after week in this church, I'm stirred up, my faith is strengthened because I, I see young people, students in high school and college who are Passionate for Jesus Christ. They stand in awe of the Lord. And I've lost that. God, I pray for every older person here who, if they're honest, is a lot like that guy I described earlier. Tripping down that road to unbelief. God, I ask that right now as we sing, that you, the Spirit of God, 
to what you are so good at doing and pour out faith. Give faith. And I pray you would protect us from using the time of waiting as an excuse for justifying our apathy. But that while we wait, we wouldn't stop looking to Jesus. (laughs) Do that and do it as we sing. Amen.